here on ESPN Plus, alongside Hercules Gomez. I'm Sevi Salazar on what is episode 220, Herc, of this show. On 220, what are you wearing? Uh, this is something that I found in the closet. I was doing a, a little bit of cleaning, trying to get some. Mm-hmm. I was trying to find some memorabilia, and I found this gem. This is back in the day, as you can see, 2005. You might remember that year. Yes, who won MLS Cup that year? The Galaxy. There you go. And who was, who was the team MVP? You're looking at it. There him. you go. Hercules Gomez. I wasn't only, the team only MVP. Only developmental player in its history. There you go. I wasn't the team MVP, but I, I did play a season in the Premier Arena Soccer League, Herc. How about that? No so way. Both... The, the Passel? <laughs> you, were, you played in the Passel? I didn't know you played the in the Passel. The Passel, yes, with the Winchester Impact. Rest in peace. They call us the Chivas USA of the PASL. The Winchester Impact, you said. The Winchester <laughs> Impact. Uh, very, uh, very semi in terms of uh, semi-pro. All right, coming up. We've got an interview with Jonathan Gomez, one we conducted actually a couple weeks ago when he was with the U.S. Men's National Team at January camp. We're going to hear from Jeff Kasouf talking U.S. Women's National Team. She Believes Cup kicks off actually a week from tonight. Weston McKinney made his first start with Leeds United. Crazy game against Manchester United. We'll recap (laughs) that. Plus, Herc, some potential changes to Major League Soccer's playoff structure. I wonder what you'll think of those. Uh, But let's start this show with some huge news heard out of Mexico. According to reports, Diego Coca is set to replace Tata Martino as Mexico's national team manager. The 50-year-old Argentine was in charge of Tigres. He took over there just as recently as November. But he's best known for taking Atlas to back-to-back titles a couple years ago, ending a 70-year title drought. Coca winning out for this job over candidates like Miguel Herrera, Guillermo Almada, Marcelo Bielsa, Nacho Ambriz, Turco Mohamed, just to name a few. Tigres have confirmed the move with this statement, also relieving Coca of his duties as their head coach. The Mexican Federation, from them an announcement is expected imminently, uh, certainly by the end of the week. Kirk, what do you think? Is Diego Coca the right hire for El Tri? No, no, certainly not from a stylistic standpoint. Mm. Now, I remember this exercise we did with the coaches and the possibles, the safeties, the reach, Mm -hmm. the dream, all that stuff. Uh, You went pragmatic and you wanted Mm -hmm. pragmatic. Well, here you go. This is as pragmatic as it gets. Yeah, it was successful with Atlas, but Atlas was a team and Diego Coca in his DNA is a coach who has no problem with sitting back. He will literally put 10 players behind the ball. It's a defend-first mentality, prioritizes the defensive work rate, and it attacks from there. At Atlas, he was very successful in the way he defended. You could see that, first in clean sheets. But in the way they attacked, they attacked with two, three players tops, and those two players were very special. A Julio Furch, who was physically gifted and, and just bodied and bothed people around, and a Julian Quinones that was playing on another level. But what you get out of him is defensive structure, and I would say about that, just that defensive structure. Now, if you had a problem with Tata Martino and his mm-hmm. defensive play against Argentina, se murió de nada, se murieron de nada. They didn't die on their show. They didn't do anything. They died playing a way that they've never played. Mm-hmm. Well, get used to it, because Diego Coca plays that way. Let's absorb. Let's counter. Let's hit him vertically if we can. But if we can't, we're maintaining a zero. 
Look, there are a lot of red flags here, Herc, but to your point, the one you raised about his style is to me not at all a red flag. That's the one box that he checks for me is that he is pragmatic and I think that's what Mexico needs to do at the international level, certainly at the World Cup level, like we saw from Morocco, if they're gonna trascender, if they're ever really gonna do something special and get past the round of 16 into that quinto partido uh, and beyond, which we know is the goal for the Mexican national team. But for me, when I look at Diego Coca, the, the red flags are, are everything else. One is the timing. I don't think I, I really understand the rush here, right? If you wait till the summer, you're certainly gonna have better candidates, more candidates. The second is his resume, Her Outside of Atlas, and I'm not suggesting it's any small thing what he did at Atlas, but you gotta look really long and really hard to find anything that's a sustained success. In fact, of all of his head coaching jobs, he's only had one other than Atlas where he's lasted more than 50 games. To me, I don't see a lot of success here. Even his Liga Meki stops other than Atlas. Santos, Cholos, he lost more games than he won. I'm just not convinced of Diego Coca as the manager. And then on top of that, there's no international experience. And if I want to put my fan hat on her, then it's really underwhelming, right? Because this is not an ambitious hire. If I think of the names that the US has been linked to, and maybe it's just links, Zinedine Zidane, jo Jose Mourinho. If you're a Mexico fan and you would hope for a home run swing, this is certainly not that. This is, this is a very safe choice, it feels. Um... I don't know about safe choice because there's nothing safe about the hiring process, and we can get into that in a bit, but mm -hmm. you, you're looking at... But it's not ambitious. This is not some superstar no, name. This is not, not a Bielsa. This, this is why it's disappointing, because you had a Bielsa. You had somebody like Guillermo Almada, who's of that cloth, mm -hmm. where it's offensive. It plays more to the Mexican player's traits. The Mexican player, by... DNA isn't a defensive player, isn't a gritty player, isn't a grind it out and look for results type of player. They're a free-flowing, technically sound player in the offensive third. And going back to what you said, you only have a little over three years into the World Cup. There mm -hmm. are no World Cup qualifiers, so you're just playing friendlies. Time to really implement a style and go forward to change a whole DNA and what could be a uh, transformational process for the Mexican uh, national team, that's going to take more than three years. So if you're trying to change the philosophy, that's not something that just changes overnight. Uh, the process for me is what gets me. And if I'm a fan, I'm disheartened by what I've seen. Right. Like, I don't know if he's a bad coach or if he's going to do a bad job here, her. but there were better candidates, even of the realistic candidates. And that's regardless of what the criteria is. I don't know what the criteria is here, but if you wanted more... Uh, Liga Meki success. You could point to Guillermo Almada. You could point to Turco Mohamed. You want more international experience. Uh, you could point to Piojo. If you want more name, more renombre, more clout, you could have pointed to Bielsa. Like, no matter what the criteria was, Herc, Diego Coca doesn't seem to be the number one guy in any category. So let's get well, to the Except process. for the championships recently. Two championships. You're right. Two championships with what he did back at Racine. What he did at Racine is, is, is crazy, by the way. Racine winning after 14 years. I mean, that's a league that's... Okay, six years ago. Six years ago now. Six no, I'm years just ago saying, now. I'm just saying. But you're right. Like, if you look at the general numbers, there are titles there. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of that goes to Grupo Orlegi, by the way. There are titles there. But the overwhelming play, or I should say the play is overwhelmingly mediocre. Despite the titles, that is great. Mm -hmm. That's what it's about. But just in general. 
Herc, as you mentioned, a lot of the criticism to this apparent appointment, we should say, is really coming down, I think, more to the process, right? And when we say process, I think we have to kind of explain it. It feels like more business as usual, kind yeah. of like the federation politics were really the driving force behind this decision and not the football, not the soccer. Are you buying that? I am. There's one opposing group to everything that's been Mexican football over the last, I'd say, two decades, and that is Grupo Pachuca. That is mm -hmm. Jesus Martinez. Uh, Guillermo Almada plays for one of Jesus Martinez's teams, mm -hmm. which is Pachuca. He was a candidate. There's a reason that Jesus Martinez wasn't or isn't in this committee, the ownership mm -hmm. committee of five. It's because he knew what was coming. So. In this status quo of everything that is happening, what happens, okay? You have five owners. You have Cholos. Don't ask me why mm -hmm. Grupo Caliente is there. You have Chivas, <laughs> America, Grupo Orlegi, which is Santos, mm -hmm. and Atlas, uh, and then Necaxa. In those five, okay, they decided we need to restructure Mexican football. Rodrigo Arres de Parga, who's never been a successful director mm -hmm. of anything in Mexican football, leaves Querétaro, which was a dumpster fire, and he's in charge of the hiring process, part of the hiring process where he goes and interviews the candidates. Mm -hmm. Rodrigo Arres de Parga, Querétaro, which is Grupo Caliente, Cholos in Querétaro, interviews what was supposed to be only Guillermo Almada and Miguel Herrera. Somewhere along the lines, we added the names Ignacio Ambriz, Turco Mohamed, Bielsa, and out of nowhere, Diego Coca, who is already making $4 million a year with Tigres, comes into the process. Why is Diego Coca relevant in this? Who is Diego Coca's representation, his agent. Well, it happens to be Christian Bra Bragarnik, and Bragarnik is a partner with Grupo Caliente. Mm. They own teams together. They own a team in Spain. They have business together in this Grupo Caliente ownership. He owns uh, those teams. He represents Diego Coca, who happens to be with Grupo Caliente, who's part of the committee. And in doing this, putting their candidate out, it eliminates... Grupo Pachuca. So this is all a mm -hmm. political ploy. And also, by the way, Diego Coca was employed by Orlegi at Santos and at Atlas. So this is all political. So in the process of putting a pawn in there and staking your territory, your land, you also mm -hmm. eliminate an opposition, which is Grupo Martinez. This is more of the same, just in, insert a different name. Back in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, it's Televisa and their monopoly. Now we're sure. seeing a bit differently. Yeah. So to boil it down, kind of the national team committee has effectively representation from five ownership groups and two of those ownership groups, both Cholos and Santos, and of course Atlas and Santos under the same ownership group, have employed Diego Coca at some point. So we had a lot of allies on the committee and people are pointing that and saying, perhaps rightfully so, that, um, you know, politics played a role here, Herc. I think what's really disappointing from that perspective is clearly you have a lot of capable people in Mexican soccer in their own little silos. And yet when they come to the table to supposedly reform Mexican soccer, instead of giving us the best candidate, what we get is the candidate of the best politician. And that's not necessarily going to be the best national team coach. You understand what I'm saying? The owner who's the best politician puts his guy in as the national team manager. And that to me is just extremely worrisome. It doesn't feel like everyone's pulling in the wrong, in the same direction. And it 
it doesn't feel like that statement we saw after the World Cup. Remember when we were told, we're, we're going to work together to make this thing work. This still very much feels like factions warring. It's just sad because you want to see a change from Mexican football, but not only are they not changing, they're reverting to the same deck of cards when it comes to their options. At the sporting level, at the administrative level, at every single level in Mexican football, it's I scratch your back, you scratch mine, let's keep business going. Real quick, before we move on, do you think he'll be successful? I think he can be. He's not a bad coach. I think he can be successful. He's not a bad coach. No, I think he can be successful at a CONCACAF mm -hmm. level. Uh, okay. Right now, okay. the version we saw of Canada and John Herdman wasn't the same version we saw in World Cup qualifying. Some of those players will be phased out because they are older. Let's see what the new crop comes in. Costa Rica, an enigma. Panama, still very young. We don't know what they're going to be like. And the U.S. men's national team, they don't have a head coach. And if. If the mantra, the style of play is going to be the same, but maybe the direction isn't there, and maybe these players have outgrown that, what's that going to look like? So Mexico's only, I guess, opposition, if you will, leading into a Gold Cup would be the U.S. men's national team. If they win, Diego Coca's fine. He's going to be there, and he's going to be at whatever other tournament they go to, whether it's Copa America or any other made-up tournament that FIFA or CONCACAF wants to put in their way. And then it's the World Cup. At the World Cup, can he be successful? I don't know. I don't see this group being successful playing that way. Mm. All right. Enough on Diego Coca. Let's talk about a player who he might, Herc, end up managing before not too long. That's Santiago Jimenez as we run it back. Santiago Jimenez. Going for Feyenoord in the Dutch Cup. Crazy game. Feyenoord advancing in penalties after a 4-4 draw. Yeah, just hear me out for a second. My man is on fire. All competitions, nine goals, one assist. He's already cost two PKs. Uh, he's the leading goal scorer in the Europa League. He just keeps getting better. If you were looking for your nine, here's your nine. And he had to take a penalty in the shootout. And as you can see there, cool, calm, collected. You mentioned nine goals and 26 appearances since making the move from Cruz Azul for the 21-year-old Mexican who was left off the World Cup squad. The Eredivisie on ESPN Plus this weekend. Great title race with plenty of U.S. and Mexico influence. Feyenoord first, Azed second, Ajax third, PSD fourth, Taylor Booth, Utrecht. You see them there. They're in seventh. And Ricardo Pepe's Groningen, they're 17th. Don't miss a minute of match day 21 action in the Eredivisie on ESPN Plus. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. 
Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. Kirk, let's talk uh, U.S. managerial jobs because we aren't the only ones talking about it. Jim Curtin, currently of the Philadelphia Union, with some interesting comments on the Crack Podcast with Demarcus Beasley and Aguchi Onye. Well, here's what he had to say when asked about the national team gig for 2026. <laughs> one, one man's misery is another man's opportunity. Are, are you eyeing that U.S. job? You know what? Um, of course, I'd love to coach the national team if that's what you're asking. But I said this before, and I mean what I say when I say it. It, whoever they choose, if they choose Jose Mourinho, if they choose Ancelotti, if they choose Jesse Marsh, I would also I'd be their assistant. You know what I mean? Like that's how important I think this World Cup is. And I you think would that's leave how we your head coaching job to be a U.S. assistant. Yes. Hercules Gomez. Lots to pick out there from what we heard from Jim Curtin. Let's start with the idea of a Curtin Marsh ticket for 2026. Are you backing it, Hercules Gomez? If it's the lesser of the evils, yes, I am. Let me explain. Oh, don't sit on the fence. This is don't not sitting sit on, on the fence. fence. This is not sitting on the fence. Let me explain. Jim Curtin mentioned Jose Mourinho. He mentioned Ancelotti. Mm -hmm. if, or any lesser name you want outside of this bubble, this domestic bubble, if that's not attainable, A, because they're not available, or because you can't come to terms, or because, quite frankly, this isn't as desirable as a job as people think, and they may not want to do it in this cycle. If mm -hmm. that's not attainable, Jesse Marsh and Jim Curtin are the lesser of the evils. If you're going to go American, I'm, yes, American, mm -hmm. it's not going to be a Materazzo. It's not going to be a David Wagner. That's, that's just a reality. So what's your pool? This is the lesser of the evils. I understand everybody's worry, and it's probably – recency bias when it comes to Jesse Marsh because a few mm -hmm. months ago everybody would have jumped at the right. chance of Jesse Marsh that's a reality you could say he's failed at certain places he's been at but he's been there and for American coaches you can't take that lightly so if this is the lesser of the evils I'm on board for a Jesse Marsh and Jim Curtin ticket because Jim Curtin and we see this a lot of times we just saw Mexico trying to do this Mexico just tried out for Jimmy Lozano they tried offering Jimmy Lozano to be the U23 coach and the assistant coach they did the same thing to Rafa Marquez who's in Barcelona. If Jim Carton were to go on in this ticket with whatever national team coach was there, mm -hmm. Jesse Marsh or better, I would be on board with that. Him taking the U23 team. Him taking that U20 team and then the U23 team at the Olympics and then being part of this process through 2026. I'm on board for that. It's the lesser of the evils for me. You could do a lot worse. If you think about the combined resumes between a Marsh and Curtin and compare that to what Greg Berhalter's resume was when he took over this team late 2018, early 2019, you could do a lot worse, right? And, and Greg Berhalter, for all accounts, you can criticize how it was done, but you have to say, got the team qualified, got them through the, the group phase and got them into the knockout round, right? So these two would have much more on their resumes combined than Greg Berhalter had back when he was hired. So I think you could do a lot a lot worse than this ticket, Herc. But what do you make of the idea of, of Marsh taking a step back, or would it be a step back, to go from head coach of a, Nash, of a club team like Philadelphia Union, a successful one, to a national team assistant? You would you do it? You said Jim Curtin, right? 
Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, I thought I heard something else for a second. Yes, if I was uh, – for him, this makes total sense. Now, it, it, it's being involved in the World Cup. Jesse Marsh was one of our assistant coaches in 2010. I was on that team in 2010, South Africa. He was an assistant coach. Being an assistant coach – Did he leave a head coaching national job? Well, Thierry Henry left a head coaching job to be an assistant coach. You know? And where's he got him? What's the next gig for him? Anywhere he wants, because if you do well, if you're part of a successful project, you can go on to bigger and better. Now, nobody's keeping an eye on Jim Kern because of what he's doing to the Philadelphia Union in Europe. But if now you have a coaching resume in a World Cup and it was successful, you can be damn sure he's going to have somebody somewhere sniffing around. And maybe it's Jesse realizes he doesn't want that. There have been cases, a lot of cases, mm -hmm. where the assistant coach has taken over for the full coach, for the full team coach. A lot of cases, a lot of different national teams, and I'm not saying that's what I want for Jim Kern, but there are easy ways to get out if you're a coach or somebody in Jim Kern's position. This is one of them. Uh, what about having two head coaches effectively, which is what you would have here, right? Jesse no, Marshall's no, a head no. coach. No, no, no. There's a hierarchy here with all due respect to Jim Curtin. Well, why don't hierarchy. we see more of this then? Why don't we see more number one guys taking number two jobs? You don't think this could get messy? With all due respect to Jim Curtin, he's not a number one at that level. So I, I don't, and he's also best mm. friends with Jesse Marsh. So I, I don't think it's going to. So you get don't think Jim Curtin's a candidate for the 2026 job on his own? No, no, mm. I don't think anybody in Major League Soccer right now is a candidate on their own. And if you were, it's because it's a desperate situation and you needed to pull a bombero out of your pocket. All right, well, uh, kudos to Jim Curtin. Seems selfless, if nothing else, that he would be willing to take the assistant job from a head Absolutely. coaching position. Uh, wait a sec. Oh, just It's a contract year for Jim Curtin, oh. 2023, the last year of his oh, contract. So no. not, not bad to be linked to the, to the national team job, whether it's an assistant or head coaching job in a contract Look at year. you. Look at you. You know all about that. You know all about no, that. No, no, no. You know I, all about that. No, I do not, but I'll be here for All right, we got more. more coaching news. This time <laughs> from the Bundesliga, her. Pellegrino Matarazzo didn't stay unemployed for long. The American hired by Hoffenheim just four months after getting fired by Stuttgart. He's actually already spent a couple years at Hoffenheim as an assistant and in the youth ranks earlier in his career. Hoffenheim currently 14th in the table, three points from the relegation zone, winless in their last nine league games. Uh, going to get to work with John Brooks and Justin Che, a couple John Brooks, Justin Americans. Che. You know, you know. Pellegrino, have you ever met him? Have you ever talked to Pellegrino, Sebi? Yes, Maybe. good friend of the program here right. on, on Football America. You know he's part of the Julian Nagelsmann coaching tree then. From the Bundesliga to the Premier League, Wednesday leads against Manchester United. Weston McKinney's first start, Chris Armas, one of a trio of coaches in charge on an interim basis. One minute in. Oh, no. Is this the, is this the post-firing bump, Herc? I mean, it happens to everybody, right? But a minute in. One minute in. A minute, one minute into the in. Chris Armas era. There's Chris Armas talking tactics at halftime. one nothing leads. A couple minutes into the second half. 2 nothing leads the own goal here for Rafael Varane. What type of Ted Lasso is this? Three minutes into the second half and again. All right, 53rd minutes getting chippy. Oh. Weston McKinney going to pick up a yellow card here. Do not touch Alberto Carlos Weston. Weston, Weston was up for it, I'll tell you that. Three minutes later, another American going in the book, this time Tyler Adams. Yeah, you can always count on him for a hard tackle. 62nd minute, Manchester United cutting into the lead. Marcus Rashford makes it 
And Marcus Rashford just scoring goals everywhere, all the time. Can't stop him. Brendan Aronson, free kick. Hark, the post. Yeah, more like the wall. What's that wall doing? Manchester United looking for an equalizer, and they get it here, Jaden Sancho. Ah, uh, keeper. Keeper. Uh, may have gotten screened, but uh, right through his hands. Game ends 2-2. All right, so Herc, for our American contingent at Leeds, was it a good draw, even though they led it 1.2-0? Um, well, in the grand scheme of things, yes, because it's Manchester United, um, because... A majority away. of people away, away. A majority of people would have chalked this up as zero points. So mm -hmm. the fact you took something out of it, Manchester United, who have been undefeated in I don't know how many games, one of the hottest teams in the world right now, it's a great result. But all things considered, that you went up not once, but twice on the road with psychological blows in the first minute of each mm -hmm. half, 20 minutes to go, and you buckle under pressure that way, ah, it just feels like a terrible result. But if you're looking at this big picture, this is an important game, sure, every point is important, every game is important. But it's not as important as what's coming up. Because mm. what's coming up is Everton, who is Everton, excuse me, who's in 18th place, and Southampton, who's in dead last. Those are six-point swings. This was get out of here with something. They did that. Yeah. Look, whoever fired Jesse Marsh was looking for a reaction, right? I mean, clearly they got it here. Not only do you get a goal in the first minute of the first half, you get a goal, what, three minutes yeah. into the second half? I mean, that, that tells you that something's working in that locker room. I'm not, I'm not saying, producer Beth is in my ear, I'm not saying that there was a, that there was a, a heroic Chris Armas speech, but something that's happening in that locker room clearly worked or, or at least worked on the day. Here's my question to you, Herc. Does the fact that they seem to have a reaction prove that the Leeds ownership was right, that it was the right time to get rid of Jesse Marsh, or is it proof that had they waited just a few more days, given him just 72 more hours, he could have eked out a result against Manchester United and maybe saved his job? Neither. It's a testament to teams that fire their coaches and immediate reaction for the players from the new coach when the new coach comes in or they know that there's going to be a new coach watching that they're playing for their lives. So there's always an uptick. There's always a reaction. That's all it proves. It doesn't prove mm -hmm. that Jesse Marsh was a good coach, a bad coach, that would have done better or worse with or without him. This just proves what we always see. A team fires their coach. There's a reaction. Good point for Leeds. Good day for U.S. fans. Three U.S. men's national team players on the field at Old Trafford. Leeds right now 16th, one point above the relegation zone. One of those three players, Weston McKinney, Herc, made his first start for Leeds since the move to Juve. How'd you rate his performance? I thought it was good. I thought it was positive. Now, why was it good? Why was it positive? Some of the things we hear when players go and they debut in the Premier League is, it took a while to get used to the pace, how fast mm -hmm. it is, how frantic mm -hmm. it is. Well. Weston McKinney didn't look out of place. In fact, I think he's pretty suited for a, a lot of the play that's in the Premier League. Defensively, he didn't look out of place or like he wasn't suited defensively. He's shown us things 
that we knew he had in his bag. That tireless mm -hmm. work rate, that willingness to get dirty. You saw him and, and uh, Luke Shaw getting into it. He, he, looked, he didn't look at a place that way. But offensively, this is still a player that's trying to find his way within this system. It's only the second game. It's his first start. I didn't think it was the sharpest going forward. We didn't see that signature Weston McKinney arriving late into the box and becoming a factor type of play or in the final third. But that'll come. That'll come with the cohesion that he'll have with his teammates, getting to know them a little bit better, getting more settled. But defensively, all these other things, he did not look out of place. So I thought it was positive for him. I made a pros and cons list, Of Herc. course, I know you, you love that. My, my pros for Weston McKinney, right away, the chemistry with Tyler Adams. Yeah, evidence. You see it, and, and you see exactly, one, how useful it's going to be for Leeds, but also I think how they're going to continue to develop that, and that's going to be very good for the national team coming down the road. So that was great. And I think to your point about the, the skirmish with Luke Shaw, he's got the attitude for the Premier League. I don't know that I thought he was off the pace at all, but I do think his impact was significantly less in the second half compared to the first. And I wonder if that is, yes, he can hang at the pace that the Premier League demands, but only for so long right now. And, and as these games come thick and heavy, um, I, I wonder what you thought about that. Because to me, that was maybe a concern, that, that what we see at Juve, what we see at Syria, it's, it is a very different pace. It, it's not as demanding as... as won the Premier League and two leads. Take, take into account the opponent. In that midfield, Fred Savica and, and Bruno Fernandes. Uh, Bruno Fernandes, sorry, uh, Derek Ray. Uh, there's, there's a big difference into that midfield and what he yeah. faced in that midfield and what he may have faced already in Serie A week after week or what he will face in the Premier League mid-table down. Right. I'm with you, though. Definitely want to see him closer to goal. That was the one thing that... that I noticed from this game for Leeds. I will also say that when he started at Juventus and even early on at Schalke, I don't remember him being close to goal. It's something that seems to, to come along later as Weston McKinney settles in with his teams. So we go from the Premier League, Kurt, to the FA Cup, where we find our good friends from Wrexham taking on Sheffield United in the fourth round. Again, this second time these two teams played. First game finished 3-3, so this is the replay. 28th minute chance for Wrexham, their first real chance. Paul Mullen drags it wide. A little bit later on, big opportunity here oh, for Sheffield no. United. Perk, explain to me how you don't score this as a striker. Uh, because you didn't pass the ball. What are you doing, McAtee? What are you doing, Maka? Pass the ball. He's keeping Wrexham in it. That's what he's doing, the uh, Sheffield United attacker. Into the second half. Um, Amirozzi shoots and scores. Yeah, Sheffield United up 1-0. This is usually game, set, match when you're playing against a lower division mm -hmm. team and you finally put the ball in the back of the net. More will come, especially at home, but the reaction was good. Yeah, again, fifth tier versus second tier. Seven minutes later, we got a penalty for Wrexham. Paul Mullen pulled down in the box. He steps up. Cool as you like down the middle. Go ahead, Super Paul! Go ahead, Super Paul! 71st minute. More from Wrexham. Yes, another penalty. Are you kidding me? I, I, I'm not. Defending this game was atrocious on both sides of the ball. And then you blew it. Oh, Paul Mullen, the second penalty. Always tough to convert. 1-1, deep into stoppage time. Mistake at the back for Wrexham. Billy Sharp, 2-1, Sheffield United. More like Billy not so sharp on the defensive end. 
tried to pull him that back with his knees. I have no idea what happened. And then, uh, that hurts. Sander Berga makes it 3-1, Sheffield United. Wrecks some Cinderella run ends, but they've become the first non-league team hurt in 68 years to total 15 goals, at least 15 goals in their FA Cup run. Historic. Here's a look at the fifth round matchups, which include, for you US men's national team fans, Leeds against Fulham. Mm. Should be a tasty one there at Craven Cottage. Let's run it back, Herc. Checking on Tim Weah, playing for Lille in the French Cup. We started left back against Lyon. Had to take a penalty in the shootout off the underside of the crossbar. Oh no, Timmy. They got him all messed up playing defense now. His head's not in it. Lille eliminated in the round of 16 after a 2-2 draw in regulation. 22-year-old Tim Weah. Here's a look at his heat map recently with Lille, who are out of the cup, but sixth in the French top flight. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. One week from today, next Thursday in Orlando, USA against Canada. Here's the 23-player roster Vladko Andonovsky picked for the tournament. Alex Morgan, Megan Rapino in. No Sophia Smith still recovering from that foot injury. For more on the U.S. Women's National Team, we call on our friend and colleague, Jeff Kasuf. You can check out his latest work actually over at ESPN.com. Dropped his latest article yesterday. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Appreciate it. All right, so as you just saw there, we were looking at the She Believes Cup roster for the U.S. Women's National Team. How close do you think this roster is to the one we'll actually see at the World Cup this summer? I think it's very close. I mean, the, the bubble has thinned out. Vlako Anonofsky said last month in New Zealand that his list of 23 that he'll take to the World Cup is down to 32. You can pretty much name them off at that point when you've got 24 in camp. You've got still a few injured that are, are major injuries that you'd expect to be in the mix. So I think really this is 
a group that's close, maybe not exact, but we're at that point where after she believes cup, we only have one window until he's going to name a world cup roster. So I think we're pretty close at this point. You say the bubble has thinned. Tell us who's on it. So who needs like a really good She Believes Cup to lock down their World Cup spot? Yeah, I think there's a couple sides of the bubble, right? I think there are people who are just on the bubble, maybe by way of uh, some of those injuries. And and you could argue maybe, uh, you know, is a Trinity Rodman on the bubble? I think she's done enough to prove that, that she should and will be at the World Cup. You know, there are other wingers. Lynn Williams has just come back from injury. I think we've seen historically in this Vlako Nanovsky era that Lynn Williams is a, a go-to forward for him on both sides of the ball. So I think her being healthy again, I, I think she's firmly in that picture. So, you know, I think you could argue that a Rodman maybe by way of that is on the bubble. But for me, she's, she's in that picture. Um, you know, you look at the midfield and Sam Coffey is a player who is not in this camp. She didn't play a single minute in New Zealand. We thought maybe she was a, a potential answer as a backup number six. And now uh, Taylor Korniak is, is getting time there, got a few minutes in New Zealand. I don't know that it went super well, but it was the first time with that experiment. And, you know, we've come to learn that she's, she's training there again in this camp. So I think, you know, she's a player too, where it seems like Vlako Nanovsky wants to get her involved. She's the tallest field player on record in U.S. program history. I think there's obvious benefits there as you get laid into a match, whether she's higher up the field in the number six. So, you know, I think she's a player who, um, you know, Vlako's clearly trying to find a place for. And then some midfielders who have been on the fringe there. Kristen Lewis has gotten a few minutes. Um, you know, I, I think that those are probably the players that are sort of on that depth chart, those depth positions in midfield especially. Jeff, it's been a while since we've had this many doubts or questions about a U.S. women's national team. What's the biggest question for Vlako heading into the mm. She Believes Cup? Yeah, I think the midfield is just that sort of evergreen question, right? I think, you know, at this point, we know who his preferred midfield is. And, and maybe for some time at the end of last year, we, we sort of from the outside wondered, okay, we've seen what he clearly prefers, but is he going to stick with it? Does it work? Especially after that rough October, November window where, you know, the losses to England, Spain, Germany, and we come back in New Zealand and we see that some combination of Rose Lavelle, Lindsay Aran, Andy Sullivan is, is the preferred uh, midfield trio. So, you know, I think that the question marks, um, you know, you're right. There, there's more questions on this roster overall. And I think for me, it's probably, they probably all boil down to experience, right? Because we look at this U.S. team and the past two cycles, we've been used to saying, okay, big names. And, and so many of them that aren't in this picture haven't been for some time. And we know, okay, you can probably rely on them in a big moment. You know what they can do at a World Cup or against a top opponent. Most of these players still... We only have that sample size against the top, top opponents of England, Spain, Germany in the fall, and that didn't go so well. So now we've got mm. Canada, Brazil, Japan. I think this is going to be a really big test for this group that, yes, they've now gone through a year together, mostly as the same core. Yes, they've gone through qualifying, but that first big prime, you know, prime test for them in the fall didn't go so well. So this is, again, top 10 opponents, three of them in a week. I think they've really got to show up collectively here to show that they can do that at a World Cup. Okay, so you've talked about this field uh, and the She Believes Cup. I'm not going to ask Sebi because Sebi's always going to go with the U.S. Women's National Team. He thinks they're invincible. <laughs> so, Jeff, can they win this tournament? Should they win this tournament? I think they can win this tournament. I think they'll want to. Um, you know, I think they need to, at a minimum, show up. Um, you know, of course, results are important. But I, I think when you look at the England game, 
the midfield really got played out, right? I mean, England dominated the middle of the park. Spain, I think, was a major disappointment, and then the Germany game that followed. The actual production, the actual uh, way that they, the U.S. played in those games, I think, was some level of average to poor, given you know whatever game or whatever moment of the game. So, I think at minimum. They need to be in these games against these three opponents and show that they can hang. If that's Brazil 1v1 defending against really technical players, if that's matching Canada, again, a very similar physical style. And obviously they did that at qualifying in the final. And then Japan, another really technical team that can challenge them defensively in ways that, you know, New Zealand didn't, obviously, in ways that um, Spain, Germany, England challenged them. So I, I think that you know, the results need to be there, but, um, you know, at minimum, we need to see that, that this team can hang with top teams in the world, which I don't think that they necessarily showed us in October and November. Jeff, got a couple quotes here that made headlines. Uh, the first is from Vladko Ananovsky in one of his recent press conferences. He mentioned two names that were very interesting to me, and I know very interesting to a lot of U.S. women's national team fans. Kristen Press and Tobin Heath. Is there any chance we see either or both of those players on the roster this summer? Look, Kristen Press is the, the really intriguing one here, right? I, I think she was in top form at the beginning of the NWSL season last year. She got hurt. We came to find out she wasn't being called into qualifying anyway. But, you know, she's a player who you know you can rely on in those big moments, as I mentioned before. You know in top form is, is exceptional individually and, and can bring something to a game. And I think when you look at this U.S. roster, this top, this forward line, certainly on the wings, is set, right? It's Sophia Smith, it's Mallory Swanson, barring injuries. So anybody else needs to be a game changer off the bench. And in some ways, you've got sort of these specialty players. If you're chasing a game, you've got Megan Rapino to bring in, in in those final moments on set pieces to do something, a moment of magic. If you're protecting a lead, you've got Lynn Williams, as I mentioned. And, and I think Kristen Press certainly can offer, similar to Rapino, uh, a different role than we're used to her traditionally over the past decade with the U.S., but I think she could offer something unique for this U.S. team. The, the question for her, obviously, especially, is that race against time. There's only one window in April. NWSL season doesn't start till March 25th. So then you're talking about even if she's in great form, even if you know what she can bring, you're probably looking at bringing her into a World Cup camp for the first time in almost two years, having not been in that environment. And and then, you know, there's sort of those intangible questions maybe that you have to face if you're Vlako Anonofsky. Jeff, what about the comments from Alex Morgan? She used the word bizarre to describe a potential Saudi sponsorship of the upcoming Women's World Cup. She also talked about the decisions made where the U.S. Women's National Team plays its games here in the United States. Uh, what'd you make of it? Grabbing quite a bit of headlines. Yeah, I mean, I think I think everybody was taken aback by the the Saudi Arabia news of a, a World Cup sponsor, the Women's World Cup. I think, you know, I'm interested to see how this plays out because we've seen uh, that players on the women's side, especially, I think, have had a certain amount of leverage of, of power to enact and enforce change, um, certainly domestically here, and I think increasingly globally. So, you know, I mean, we saw right. We just had a Men's World Cup in Qatar. There was there was so much. Uh, push back against that, but ultimately maybe a feeling of resignation by some that like this is how it is, this is how it goes, and and this is where that World Cup is going to be, and ultimately was. Um, this obviously a little bit different in that it's a sponsorship versus you know the logistics of a host country, um, you know. But there's obviously a lot of money involved in those things as well. So uh, I'm really curious to see if 
the players have enough leverage here to, to push back in a way that might nullify a deal like this. I, I might be surprised if that happens just because I think if this deal is done in the way that it's been reported, uh, it's probably big money and it, it's a big money investment in a FIFA World Cup. And I think FIFA's probably happy with that. All right, Jeff, before we let you go, we got to talk about the NWSL schedule, which, of course, finally at long last dropped. Everybody was waiting. And I mean, everybody was waiting. They found it on the, on the side of a milk cart. The NWSL schedule drops. Uh, let's start with the obvious question. It's a World Cup year, so how are they going to deal with that? Yeah, I think this has been a real point of contention. I, I reported on recently the, the FIFA windows, the NWSL has not traditionally followed these international windows. And now they're attempting to, and that's creating some friction. They have a calendar that doesn't always align with it. So uh, there was friction around this, this February window of releasing players a week ahead of the FIFA window. And uh, they'll release them two weeks ahead of the FIFA window for the World Cup, actually. July 10th, that opens. NWSL players of all nationalities will be released on June 26th. So um, again, as we've seen in 2015 and 19, significant disruption to the NWSL season. I think this is a problem that's not going away. I will give them some credit for mitigating this to the degree that they can in the short term, which is, you know, two weekends off instead of one. I don't think that really solves a problem, but combined with the fact that they have really scheduled the Challenge Cup for predominantly to be in that World Cup window where, you know, I think a lot of people objectively look at the Challenge Cup as a secondary competition. So scheduling that exclusively into the World Cup, I think that's sort of doing the best you can with, with the situation you're presented if you're the NWSL, which is you don't have a significant disruption to the regular season where you get to the end of the season and say, okay, these players were gone and obviously it affected the standings. Um, I, I think they did the best that they could with a bad situation. And now, as I've kind of been reporting over these past few weeks, they've really got to figure out what is next year, what do the next five years look like to, to figure this problem out? Because um, FIFA windows aren't going away. FIFA wants to add a club World Cup. There's still talk of a biennial World Cup. I mean, there are things that are only going to create further problems for a league that plays through the summer in, in a world that's based around a European calendar that doesn't. Congrats, Jeff. You just depressed me. All right, give me something positive. <laughs> give me a few positives of the NWSL season schedule. Well, look, I mean, I do think the positive is that they, they manage the situation the best that they can uh, in terms of the Challenge Cup. And, and the big thing for me, and I think we talked about it on this show a few months ago, right, is we have a decision day now. Um, MLS has incorporated that over the years. We've always sort of had that in the European leagues that don't have playoffs, obviously, of simultaneous kicks to end the season. So I, I give them credit to finally have that. I wish we had it last year. We could have had really the most ridiculous final day that we've ever seen if we had it last year. I don't know if we'll get that again this year, but the fact that we have October 15th, 5 p.m. kicks every team, I'm interested to see, do we get another shield battle that changes by the minute? Do we get a team dropping in and out of the playoffs by the minute? I think that's probably the, the overriding big win from this schedule. Decision day drama sounds like just what the NWSL needs. Jeff Kasuf, thanks for joining us here on Football America. It's always great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Here's a look at some key dates for the NWSL's 2023 schedule, which starts on March 25th. Another shout for Jeff's article over on ESPN.com. U.S. Women's National Team Big Four, the list of 23 ahead of the Summer World Cup. Time to turn back to the men's game now in our previously recorded interview with Jonathan Gomez from U.S. Men's National Team January camp. 
you're very young, Jonathan, but you've already moved around quite a bit in your career. You go to Louisville, then you go to Real Sociedad. You've been in the U.S. national team camp before. You've been in the Mexico national team camp before. All of that is to say you've walked into a lot of locker rooms for the first time. When you walked into this locker room for the first time with Anthony Hudson and this staff, what was the message that stood out to you? What did they want to drive home? The message from Anthony Hudson and his staff, well, part of his staff is actually Mikey Varas, the under-20 coach, who I've obviously been working with, but it was to, kind of, kind of what I said, to uh, take advantage of the opportunity um, and have fun. I mean, that's obviously we're all here because football is our passion and we all want to have fun with it. But yeah, it was to, to take advantage of the opportunity. Um, don't put pressure on yourself and just enjoy the moment. Speaking of opportunities, you're one of the players, many now, that have the opportunity to play for both the United States and Mexico. Let's start with something that comes up a lot on this show when Hercules Gomez talks about it. He says that for all of you guys that are of the age that are Olympic eligible, the fact that the U.S. has Olympics and an under-20 World Cup in your case, uh, is a very important part of the decision-making process. Do you feel that that's true? Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. It's definitely, it's definitely a factor. Um, uh, like you said, I'm U20 eligible and Olympic eligible. So when, when you're making it a, a decision as a player, you obviously factor both of those things in um, because those are developmental tournaments. I mean, obviously a, a huge, huge opportunity to play in any World Cup, a U20 World Cup, and then obviously Olympics is as well an opportunity uh, of a lifetime. So those are, there's definitely truth to that. You know, and, and I know you know about this because you grew up in Texas. So you know about high school football and getting recruited to colleges and the big colleges. I kind of imagine you a little bit as a recruit. You, you, you've been into the Mexican national team camp. You're now at the U.S. camp. Uh, what's it like being in the camp in this phase where, I don't know, maybe the guys there are kind of trying to convince you to, to join the program? Uh, um, yeah. Uh, well, I guess there was also, there's also plenty of, I don't know about plenty, but there's also a few other players in, in my situation, obviously Brandon Vasquez, uh, Sendejas, who I, when I went to the Mexican camp, Sendejas was also there. Um, so I, I, I spoke I spoke to him a little bit about it, um, but yeah, I, w I wouldn't really say they're necessarily trying to convince me. I think everyone's just trying to, I guess, create a, a good atmosphere. And at the end of the day, like you said, it's it's my decision, so it'll it, it'll come down to I guess whatever I decide. But they're just trying to make the most enjoyable atmosphere for me. For I mean, for all the guys. Um, for us to want to, to come back, and not just me, all the guys. I mean, for the guys that it's their first camp, um, make a good impression and and make everyone want this to be where they want to be. You're one of the few guys that's been in both camps at the senior level. What's the difference? Or what are some of the differences? Well, the language. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say there's too many differences, to be honest. I think... Uh, well, I guess this camp has been shorter, um, and there's been two games, so the focus has more been has been more on the games. Um, I would say when I went with the Mexican national team, there was a, a, a big emphasis on on the game that we played against against Guatemala, um, and then here I think they they do they do a good job of um, emphasizing on the training as well. I mean, I know um, Anthony's obviously came in as the, the interim coach. And we've had a short time, like I said. Um, guys came in at different times. We had two games, not that many training sessions, but they've still uh, been able to uh, emphasize the ideas in the training sessions, um, how we want to press, um, how we're going to build out, stuff like that. I know this is a big decision for you. I know it's kind of looming over the rest of your career. Do you have a timetable? Do you know kind of when you want to 
make up your mind by and, and, and kind of have this in the rear view mirror? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say there's a timetable. I, I, and I don't think I pressure myself to that decision at all. I think it's just, I mean, as of right now, enjoy the moment that I'm here with the U.S. national team, take advantage of this camp, and then after, go back to my club. And ultimately, if I don't do my job at my club, there's not going to be national team opportunities. So I need to do my job there. And, and then from there, we'll, we'll, we'll see. So I, I wouldn't say there's a, there's a specific timetable or, or any, I guess, clock that's ticking in my head, like, oh, by in a year I need to make this decision, et cetera. Let's talk about your club. How are things going at Real Sociedad? You've been there not quite a while. Yeah, I've been there. I got there in January of, 20, of 2022, so I've been there just over a year, 13 months. And I would say it's going well. Um, I'm really happy at the club. Um, uh, obviously on the field as well as off the field. Off the field, I feel like the, my adaptation process has gone well. Um, I was able to get a car. Um, I have a good living situation. So all that stuff I'm happy with, and I think I'm, I'm progressing well as a player. Um, the club has a has a really good setup, and and yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be there and hopefully continue to develop. What was that jump like to make the move from Louisville and USL to training with the La Liga team? I think mentally, I think I prepared myself mentally for it because um, because I knew it was going to be a, a jump in obviously the level and there was obviously going to be outside factors um, like time change, just stuff like that. But I think more stuff off the field, uh, my brother prepared me for, who's obviously been in Europe longer than I have. Um, and then I could focus more um, on the on the field stuff. And I think as as I've been training more and more there, obviously um, playing as well, I've gotten better and better. At first, you when I started out, it was it was kind of like a shock, I would say, um, in in the level, and not not that I was out of place or anything like that, but I just think that um, I was like impressed. And then as as time went on, I got better and better, and now I'm just uh, I mean, obviously, continuing to get better. How close do you feel to the first team? I wouldn't say I'm I'm super close, or I'm I wouldn't say I'm super far. I think it's all it's all it's all relative. I think for me, I just have to be patient. They obviously have a have a plan for me, um, and um, and I just have to stick to that plan and and continue to perform well, train well when I get that opportunity to train with them. If I when I get opportunities to to play in a friendly with the first team, then show well there and take advantage of those opportunities. And I'm sure my time will come. Jonathan Gomez, taking advantage of those opportunities. Thanks for joining us here on Football America. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me on. Always good to have Jonathan Gomez here with us on Football Americas from National Team Camp back in January. Let's take a look at some of his stats, certainly from the game against Serbia. Overall, Herc, how'd you rate his performance back in January with the U.S.? You know, he, he's a player that I want to jump out of the screen for me because of mm -hmm. just the story. He's a great story, you know, Mexican-American kid, comes out of USL, goes to Europe. He, he's in a legit setup. You want to see him succeed, and you've seen him now at two national teams, two separate national teams, Mexican national team and the U.S. Mm -hmm. men's national team. Albeit brief appearances, his first with the U.S. men's national team causes the goal uh, that gives him the victory over Bosnia um, in that, in that uh, January camp, last January camp. And then you watch him here, and he plays a lot, plays the whole game. 
and you're thinking, when is he gonna jump out of the screen? He's taking guys on, but he's coming back. He's looking to get crosses. Some of them aren't too effective. Yes, you get him off, but not so precise. I understand he's 19 years of age, but as a outside back, that to me is important. You wanna show me how good your team is with the ball, what type of team you have, show me your outside backs. That's how I will know. He lost the ball 25 times in this game. A lot of that is because he's taking chances. And I understand that you get into the final third, take chances and make your name. But he didn't do anything where he jumped out of the screen for me. And for me, to make a decision off of him, and that may be harsh, that may be unfair, but that's what it's gonna take. It's gonna take him jumping out of the screen to get to continue to get these call-ups, to continue to get invited back, to continue to have yeah. two nations fight for him. And I just felt, and maybe not his fault, but if you're asking me what did I see from him in this game, nothing that jumped out of the screen. Yeah, nothing that makes you call him back in, right? And that's the real question. Did he do enough to earn another call-up? And you're thinking about March and the CONCACAF Nations League and what the options will be for Anthony Hudson, we assume with U.S. soccer, you're going to take Anthony Robinson, right? Assuming Anthony Robinson's healthy, he's there. Death, Scally, Vines, your boy Tolkien, who, by the way, played pretty well, I thought, against Columbia. Vines, you there said? Are, yeah, there are a lot okay. of options at left back. I'm not saying they're all, I'm not saying they're all ahead of, of Jonathan Gomez, but a lot of those guys are ahead of Jonathan Gomez. And how many left backs are you calling in in the March window? Yeah, he's, he's young as well, and, and there comes a maturation period with being so young and learning. And when you're – I don't care what you guys think of outside backs. If you're an outside back, you saw how many times he was on the ball. You're close to the 90 times on the ball. Mm -hmm. uh, in a way you dictate play, you need to be more influential. Influential in how you go forward, influential in how you take care of the ball, and influential in the way – you prioritize the team's attack. So there, there's still room for growth there. But yeah. just based off this appearance, I don't think we're making any rash judgments yeah. just yet. You definitely active, maybe not impactful enough, uh, as you say, just yet. We got more dual national news, Hercules Gomez, and more defender news, actually. The latest on Julian Araujo and that failed transfer from the LA Galaxy to Barcelona. Mateo Alemani, the Barcelona sporting director, said that the club has appealed Araujo's case to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, and that even if Barcelona doesn't succeed in court, Alemani claims that Araujo will, quote, play somewhere else for five months and then join Barca B in the summer. So, yay. All's well that ends well, Herc. What do you think about that? Um, that's somewhere else for five months. Is he talking about the LA Galaxy? Because they're in Coachella right now, and there is no Julian Araujo appearance to be seen. Yeah, I don't think he cares who it is for the next five months. Of course, La Liga is available to you right here on ESPN+. And on Sunday, you can catch Luca de la Torres, Celta de Vigo, against Atletico Madrid. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Time to check the mentions. It's been a while since we did this, going back to our days, or should I say... Nights in Doha, taking questions from our friends, fans, and followers on social media. The first one here from Joe Daka. I remember him or her. 
from the World Cup in Qatar. What's the likelihood of Diego Coca making it all the way to the World Cup as Mexico coach? Herc, he hasn't even officially been hired yet. We're already talking about when he's going to be fired. Yeah, well, he's been... He's been outed, if you will. Tigres, in their disgust over the decision, pretty much said he's going to the Mexican Nationals. He was like, that's more than official. It would take something crazy for that not to mm -hmm. go that way. Um, you know what? So I was thinking about this. Let's do the math. Tata Martino, mm -hmm. the whole cycle. Juan Carlos Osorio, the whole cycle. Okay? There was no cycle with Miguel Herrera. He was part of... He was the second coach brought in in that cycle, and before that, the third coach. There were there were four coaches used well, in that there was cycle. An interim, you, yeah, there was an interim interrupts. tag. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think they're due, and and the reason I say this is the only thing that could impede mm. a Concacaf mm. coach from making it in a team like the U.S. Men's National Team or a team like the Mexican National Team or even the Costa Rican National Team would be an abysmal showing. In, mm -hmm. Maybe three of the tournaments from now today when we do this show to the World Cup. I'm talking Nations League. I'm talking Gold Cup, which could be expanded, and there could be some very mm -hmm. good level there. Mm -hmm. And Copa America. If you have an abysmal showing and things don't go your way, I don't think Mexico thinks twice about this. So one of my complaints about this hire is that it's not very ambitious. But hires that are not ambitious are also not that expensive, which I think lets you get out. Right? It gives you an exit Ooh, ramp. One of the things know, we Sandy. always talked about, Herc, with Tata Martino was the amount of money he was on and that the Mexican Federation did not want to have to eat that financial bullet. So I think here there is there is potential for an out because I don't think he's going to cost all that much money, certainly not compared to some, some big name like global elite manager. Uh, and then beyond that, I think the 2024 Copa America is a pretty serious referendum. dude. You go out there, you have a Juan Carlos Osorio seven goals. And even though JCO survived it, um, I don't know that Diego Coca would. All right, let's get to our next question here. Four million net he made from Tigres. Well, would have made. That is a lot of money, and they're gonna have to pay him more than that. So you're right; they're gonna be they're gonna be eating some change if they get rid of him. Rodrigo asks, "Are you cool with the new proposed MLS playoff structure?" The details here, reported by the Athletic, there's gonna be 18 teams in the playoffs, Herc, with uh, best of three in the first round. What do you think? You cool with it? No. <laughs> I also, do I think it'll happen? Also, yeah. probably no. I think they use, and I've seen this floater around uh, a bit. We've seen this. They gauge the people. Okay, we've sure, seen this. Sure. All right. But why would they want to do this? Okay, why would they want to go best of three and, and like 60-something percent of the league getting in? Because they want money they want more games which equal more money which is the gate the sponsorships the tv playoff everything. home games playoff, playoff home, games. home games that's where you make your money why on earth would the players agree to this mm, mm. why on earth does anybody think this is a good idea they finally found a format that made an irrelevant regular season relevant somewhat mm -hmm. relevant it's one game do or die best seed host it and you're gone. It yep. was the best playoff scenario they've ever had in their history, and they're moving away from it. Why? Yep. Money. Yeah. My favorite playoffs were 2019. I just love the one and done. I hate the idea of going back to three and hurt. The idea of eight 
19 out of 29 teams. That's that's another that's another thing we're gonna have to talk about here with these proposals. 62% of the league now you're getting into Liga Mekis territory, uh, and we know the impact that that's had. Yeah, former Liga Mekis territory producer Beth that reminds me, but we know the impact that that's had um, on players in the national Breeds team. Let's get to the third question. Third question here on Check Dimensions. What do we got from our our loving and adoring public from Nathan's interior decorator? All right. How do you guys feel about LAFC's John Thorington for sporting director or general manager for U.S. soccer? Do you think he'd leave L.A. for the national team and could he even do both jobs? A lot of questions there, Hurt. Uh, pick one or pick them all. Um, so there are a few candidates, if you were to go in this side of the world, who has done well at an mm-hmm. administrative role that used to play that has those connections and can be that bridge. Yeah, John Thornton's a realistic name because of the success he's had uh, on all levels. Uh, Garth Lagerway is also a very interesting mm-hmm. name who's done it over a much longer extended period of time. So, and in multiple spots. And uh, in, in multiple, multiple spots. Places too. Ralph Thornton Salt has Lake, only done it with LAFC. Ralph Salt Lake, the Seattle Sounders, and now we're going to see what this new wave with Atlanta United can create, but I would go the tried and proven mm-hmm. if you were going to go that way. Now, you could also go a different way and go somebody foreign, somebody that yes. you may have heard of or may not have heard of, but what's the stop with Dennis DeClose, uh, Close, excuse me, Let's Dennis DeClose from being a productive, you know, um, mm-hmm. director or GM? I like Thornton for the future, maybe not quite yet he's been only at LAFC he's earned, he's earned having his name there though Seb that's that's a 100%, fact 100% because he's he's been there LAFC since the very very beginning he, he built it so he gets a lot of the credit for what they've done and they built a great team at first they had to rebuild it again so I, I think he's a name for the future but maybe not quite yet maybe there's other Americans ahead of him but we talked about this I think it must have been a digital segment I love Dennis DeClose I don't think there's a box that he doesn't check for the sporting director that's position. right you did say that yeah. All right. Last question here on Check Dimensions. This is the last one. Yeah. Last one. La última y nos vamos. Last question for me today, says Antonio. Must have sent in a few. For the 2025 Gold Cup, who would y'all like to compete from Africa, South America, Europe, and Asia, ideally? And can a CONCACAF team win it all? All right. So the 2025 Gold Cup, which you mentioned, reportedly going to be expanded to 24 teams. There would be 16 from CONCACAF, and then two each from Europe, Africa, Asia, and South America. What do you think? Yes. Uh, you're asking the guest nations. I would Okay. Argentina, mm-hmm. Morocco, South Korea. Um, who am I missing? Oh, yeah. And you would... And then, oh, for this? For this? Ah... Mm-hmm. <sighs> France or Portugal? Ooh, oh, Portugal. Okay. Are you thinking like, you think a little CR7, like farewell tour or something? This is 2025. It's a, it's a ways away. You, you see what I did there? Uh, yes. My, uh, my votes would be England, France for European teams. Africa was tough. I wanted to say Senegal, Egypt because you get stars. You get Salah and, and Sadio Mane. Oh, you're doing two from each? You get two from each. Yeah, you get oh, two from then, each. Then, yeah, okay. Then if I'm going okay. to another African nation, I would have gone. Nigeria has huge uh, expat population here. That would be 
You get yeah, some great crowds. Yeah, but I'm not thinking about Nigeria. who's here in the States. I'm thinking about who deserves it. Uh, I don't go like you, Seb. Uh, ah, puro marketing, Seb, huh? Yeah. Can I go Ghana, though? Just because I think that's sure. a good little crossover with the U.S. Sure. Just make sure Argentina, Brazil are there. Uh, Asia, I said Japan. I wouldn't mind seeing Australia after what they did uh, in the World Cup. One thing I would say, Herc, there's potential in that tournament for CONCACAF to get embarrassed. If we really invite all the teams that we're talking about, I could see a U.S., Mexico, Canada, and or all three, you know, going out before the semifinals. And that would be wow. a bad look. In your own continental tournament, none of your teams make the make the final four? Well, what do you want? Don't invite anybody then. No, it's good, right? You want the competition. Just might not look good on paper. All right, a reminder, Bundesliga. Weekend schedule here on ESPN Plus. We got Kevin Paredes is Wolfsburg uh, kicking things off on Friday. We got Gio Reyna and Dortmund on Saturday. Jordan Pifak and Union Berlin on Saturday. And Pellegrino Matarazzo's first game in charge of Hoffenheim. That game on Saturday as well against Bayer Leverkusen. Uh, all that available for you on ESPN+. Plus. All right, that'll do it for this edition of Football Americas. A reminder, on Monday's show, a two-on-one interview with Jerdan Shakiri of the Chicago Fire from MLS Media Day. Uh, we had a great time with Jerdan. Yeah. Great time. Well... I had a great time. He didn't really nah. like you with him. <laughs> he, he did not like you when he saw you. He's like, it's you. It's you. All right, we'll save that for Monday. Don't miss it. Jeran Shakiri, two-on-one here on Football Americas. He's Hercules Gomez. I'm Sevi Salazar. Thanks for watching, and have a good weekend.